I'm Greg, and you're listening to Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Hey, Greg. Hey, Polly. How you doing? Good. How are you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Today? Yeah? On Totally Preventable. Who? We got Foster Forward, Lisa Lisa Gallette from... Uh, she's the executive director there, yeah. and uh, they are doing some some huge things. I've been reading about them and keeping an eye on them and doing some research on them, and they are making some big steps, and it is well worth hearing about. And so, foster forward, foster kids. Uh, yes, foster kids? Yeah. it's 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 a resource for foster kids. It's not a, not a placement, yep. but it is a resource for fosters, and it is it goes beyond just being in care, so aftercare as well. So it's. Awesome. It's going to be great to hear about all the great work that they're doing out here. Good. Awesome. Can't wait. All right. So without further ado, today joining us on our Totally Preventable podcast, we have Lisa Gallette, the Executive Director of Foster Forward. Lisa, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you folks? We're doing good. Doing good. Yeah, I'm going to scoot over a little near Greg so he can have his whole head in the frame. Too. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> Tired of being half the head in the video. So, so Lisa, to, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I have been the executive director of Foster Forward for 19 and a half years. And we weren't always called Foster Forward. We changed our name in 2012. We actually originally were the Rhode Island Foster Parents Association. Believe it or not, we were founded around the kitchen table of a group of foster parents who um, we're noticing that children that were coming into the DCYF foster care system often lacked kind of that consistent focus and support, um, even though the system's designed to represent the best interests of children. These families saw gaps in the system and wanted to come together to support each other and to support children in youth and care. Wow. And so in the 19 and a half years that I've been here in 2012, we changed our name to Foster Forward, but we've grown um, in expanding services for youth in transition. So young people who've been in the foster care system and are now transitioning to adulthood and really doing the preventive uh, tasks of ensuring housing stability, financial capability, supporting young people with positive adult connections and building those protective and promotive factors that we know make a really big difference. Um, also helping with employment support and helping young people navigate career exploration, completing education, going on to higher education. So the organization's really expanded over the years. We are still true to our roots in supporting foster families, both kinship and what we call traditional or non-relative um, foster families. And we have a number of resources and supports that help us do that. Um, but we've really expanded and refined our work um, with that transition age youth. And actually one of our programs, Works Wonders, is now being replicated in other jurisdictions in the country because it's been so successful here. So um, that's been really exciting. It's given us an opportunity to test out our work in other parts of the country. Um, but also an opportunity to build a more sustainable nonprofit. Mm. One of my goals uh, with my tenure here was to leave it better than I found it. And one of the things that we find in the nonprofit space is we're so dependent on time-limited grant opportunities, government contracts, other donations. And sometimes it's hard to do strategic planning in three to five-year increments 
when your funding might only be six months or 12 months long. So we're constantly striving to innovative strategies that help us not only better serve and achieve better outcomes for, um, for the folks that we serve, but also to drive to a more efficient, effective, and sustainable organization. That is awesome. Congratulations on that expansion and growth. That is amazing. Thank you. That's really yeah. It's a team effort. We have an incredible board and uh, an amazing staff and, you know, it's, um, it's not an easy thing. It doesn't happen overnight, but, um, you know, there just, there've been some opportunities. I think part of it is just starting to think differently mm. about how to do the work. And when you get outside of that box, you know, that proverbial box, but, um, but it's true that innovation isn't necessarily doing something um, new. Sometimes it's playing with the parts that you already have in different ways. Mm. Good way to look at it. So Foster Forward doesn't place kids. You just support the families and support the youth as they transition. Correct. Yeah. Well, child placement varies from state to state in terms of who's the authorized entity to do it. There are some states where it's delegated authority to community agencies, but Rhode Island is a state where the child welfare agency, which is the Department of Children, Youth, and Families has the sole legal uh, responsibility to place young people in the foster care system when they need to be removed. But we're on totally preventable. So one of the things that I want us to think about is not just the services that organizations in the foster care system provide, but really what were the conditions that brought families to the front door of the child welfare system to begin with? And how could we disrupt some of those um, experiences and drivers and maybe change the course to avoid the need for foster care? Mm. And, you know, we might always have some need to have a foster care system, but it probably could be a lot smaller than it is. And if we're being really honest about it, um, just like systems of community of policing, we can see that child welfare has deep deep history um, and being rooted in racial and ethnic inequities. We need to look no farther than like India, the history of Indian homes um, to know that child welfare and child protective systems have often criminalized poverty and have been disproportionately um, impacting families of color since inception. And so we need that out of the box thinking to say, well, what were those drivers that were bringing families to the doorstep of the child welfare system or bringing them to the attention? And in some cases in a disproportionate way, and how could we dismantle those systems, disrupt the usual practice and do things differently so that families are enabled and supported in their communities and don't need to experience the punitive system of child welfare involvement. Because when we dig deeper into it, oftentimes, families that experience child welfare don't have really great outcomes for the intervention in the long term. And, um, and while we have disparities in terms of who enters, we have really, or sorry, while well, we have disproportionalities in who enters, we have really deep disparities in, in the outcomes. You know, children of color are much more likely to, when removed, be placed in a group home setting as opposed to placement with family. They're much more likely to stay in foster care longer and they're far less likely to exit the system with a positive exit disposition, you know, to reunification, adoption, or guardianship. 
um, they're more likely to, to languish in foster care and potentially age out of the system. And we know that for young people who age out of foster care, the long-term outcomes from a national perspective are not really great. You know, the likelihood of experiencing homelessness in the first year of aging out of foster care is very high. The likelihood of having ongoing involvement in, um, in public systems, whether it's incarceration, um, public assistance through like Department of Human Services, um, or even second generation child welfare involvement when young people who exit foster care become parents are far more likely when we see um, this age out phenomenon. So, so much of our work, you know, while we're working within a system and then outside and alongside of it is to say, what are these key moments of disruption where with the right intervention or support, we can provide primary prevention or you know, a secondary prevention to avoid um, further negative outcomes. It's a great way to look at it, that it's actually prevention instead of reaction. So. Right, right. That just brought up like a million questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, are there any services for young people? Like I know you're, you help them transition, but you know, we're always saying here that, you know, the drinking age is 21 because the brain is not fully developed until it's 25. And uh, so to then all of a sudden have this young person just oof, out into the world at 18 without much support, it feels like there should be like a, another step in there. Oh my gosh. I love your questions. <laughs> I love that you asked first, do we work with young people? Because I think that anyone doing any work to solve human challenges or to address human challenges, it's so important to center the people who are most affected in the work. And so at Foster Forward, we work directly with young people who are experiencing foster care. There are partners in this work. I mentioned we have a workforce program that's now being replicated nationally. It's called Works Wonders. When we designed it in 2011, we actually co-designed it. We co-created it and co-administer it with the young people we serve. And it makes a huge difference. And in the classroom experience, young people are co-facilitators. Um, they're peer leaders among other young people who are experiencing care. Uh, they are credible messengers because they have that same lived expertise and um, can share those experiences with young people. And then the second point you brought up about adolescent brain development, I mean, my goodness, we know that for young women, the frontal lobe where your discretion, your impulse control, your executive function, it doesn't get fully developed until, you know, the early to mid 20s. And for young men, it can be even a little bit longer than that. So, <laughs> you know. It's kind of crazy that um, up until a few years ago, most states that had foster care systems um, with an age out age of 18 started a national movement to say 18 is far too young for young people to leave foster care. And it should be at least 21 and maybe even farther than that if, you know, if they're still in that system by the time they reach that, that age. That just because we say, well, 18 is the age of majority and you can vote, it doesn't mean that physiologically you're equipped to do all of the things that we would expect for, you know, full in, independent living. 
um, you know, most of the young people actually, we just got a 20 year data dump of information from Rhode Island Department of Education combined with data from DCYF about looking at the ride data on graduation rates, uh, chronic absenteeism, suspension rates, promotion rates, third grade reading, you know, reading and math scores. And finally, for the first time ever, they were able to cross that data in their um, ecosystem and screen out and disaggregate the young people who had experienced foster care. And what was, um, you know, what were those outcomes that RIDE was collecting for all kids, but what were those outcomes specifically for students who were experiencing foster care? And we found definitively that the four-year graduation rate for young people who had experienced foster care collectively is 44%. Mm. Um, and when we look at the same age peers who have not experienced the foster care system, I think we were like at least a year or two ago, we were on 83%. Wow. So that's a huge gap, right? And so when we so when we further think about like potentially leaving a foster care system at 18 knowing that in Rhode Island, only 44% of those young people had even gotten that diploma or GED. And, you know, there are no shortage of career pathway opportunities in our state. Our Department of Labor and Training is working hard every day with employer partners in the community, companies like Electric Boat, um, you know, bringing more businesses into Rhode Island. But there aren't too many high wage, high growth opportunities that don't at least require the minimum of a diploma or GED. Mm -hmm. And we are currently not hitting the mark in setting up young people who've experienced foster care for success in their careers after they leave the foster care system, because you know they're, they're really not gonna be able to advance very quickly um, without having that diploma or GED in hand. And that's a challenge that we face every day with the young people we're working with. And honestly, as they've moved to transitioning from foster care, even when you can help them with housing stability and address some of the other unmet needs, it's really hard to re-engage around education farther downstream. There are just too many other demands for these young people. It makes it much more difficult. So when we think about what's totally preventable, it's about how are we looking at this data that we have right now at our disposal and having bigger community conversations? Because I know, you know, we've talked a lot about pandemic learning loss in our communities and how our young people are farther behind and there's federal dollars and each school district has an opportunity to develop a remediation plan to help students catch back up again. And when we know how those who are most challenged or most burdened in a system are doing, we can better design and support interventions that will lift up everybody. And so I think it's it's an important um, opportunity for us right now to be digging deeper into this educational data and really ensuring that whether it's a school committee conversation or a conversation through the Rhode Island Department of Education, that community members really step up and say, how are our kids in our community performing and what do we need to do differently to support that? And you know, there's also now a Trauma-Informed Schools Act that was passed, a commission to implement the Trauma-Informed Schools Act um, was just seated this week. I think that's gonna be an important conversation for communities to follow along with because we know that um, 
you know, speaking of in prevention, um, behavior is the language of trauma. When people have experienced trauma, you know, oftentimes the early signs of that trauma is behavior. And, you know, in school settings, behavior can sometimes signal that something's wrong. And sometimes, you know, if we're not, if we're not careful and we're not trauma informed, the first response might not be, let's pull you in. You know, it might be, oh, well, you got to go home early today. We're going to call your mom and you're going to leave, or you're going to have in-school suspension, or you're going to be, you know, you're going to be suspended. You know, the push out strategy isn't going to help us maintain engagement. I mean, what we've seen with, um, you know, we know that kids that are chronically absent are, you know, that's a huge proxy as to whether or not you're going to read at grade level in third grade. And reading at grade level in third grade is a huge proxy of whether or not you're going to graduate from high school on time. Mm -hmm. So um, there are so many early warning signs and our data as a state has become so much more sophisticated over the last several years for us to be able to do this kind of disaggregation, not just in subpopulations, but looking more broadly at racial and ethnic disparities, disparities across gender, young people who identify as LGBTQI. I mean, we we definitely have more at our fingertips to help us do some predictive analytics and really think differently about how we are disrupting what is usual care. Because we know if we do what we've always done, we're gonna get what we've always gotten. Right, right. Is, is there a time where um, a client, a foster forward ages out or do the, do you stay with them throughout? So um, we have criteria and sometimes um, age limits set by different federal and state funding programs. So, you know, when HUD says um, rapid rehousing for a young person experiencing homelessness is 18 to 24, then if I had a young person walking into our drop-in center for young people experiencing homelessness. So one of the resources that we have here is in our office in East Providence, we do have a drop-in center um, that's open Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 10 to three for young people who are experiencing homelessness. They can come in, they can charge their phones and devices. They can use our computers, free Wi-Fi, get a, get a rest. If it's the summer, it's cool. If it's the winter, it's warm. Uh, we have a food pantry on site. They can get a hot meal. We have a shower. They can take a shower and we have laundry facilities. They can do a load of laundry and then they can meet with staff and get connected to any program or resource that they're eligible for. Uh, we also let young people use our address as a safe place to get mail if they're trying to establish SNAP benefits, if they're not stably housed at the moment. Um, we can assist them with that or applying for other programs, applying to housing authorities to get on wait lists, all of that. So um, we would never turn away a 26-year-old or a 28-year-old or a 32-year-old who had a prior foster care history who came into our office and said, hi, it's me, I'm back. Or, you know, I heard about you and, you know, need some help. We might be limited in what funding streams we would be able to pull on to braid together um, an array of services and supports for them. But we would still, you know, SNAP benefits if they met that eligibility threshold, we would help them connect to that. Um, young people who've aged out of foster care in Rhode Island have the legal right 
to um, under the Affordable Care Act to have health insurance to age 26. If you haven't had stability in your housing address, you might have fallen off of the rolls, but we can help anyone up to 26 reconnect to that. Um, so we're not going to turn somebody away, but we might be limited in a particular funding stream. Like some people might not know um, during the pandemic, Cong Congress authorized a voucher, a housing voucher called FYI or Foster Youth to Independence. And it specifically helps young people who have left foster care sometime after 18 up to 21. And within, they can get the voucher assigned to them within 90 days of leaving care or if they experienced homelessness after they left, they could go back to the child welfare agency. And if there were vouchers available through a housing authority, DCYF could work to assign a voucher for them. It still means that they've got to find a landlord who's willing to rent at the HUD funded fair market rates, um, but it provides 36 months of subsidized rental support for those young people. So, one of the things that, you know, when I use this term disrupt markets, I mean, we were experiencing during the pandemic that young people were getting these vouchers and we worked really hard from a policy perspective to support Congress in authorizing the vouchers. And then we worked really hard with DCYF and Rhode Island Housing and a couple housing authorities in Rhode Island to make sure we were bringing the vouchers to Rhode Island. And then we had a moment of deep frustration because young people were getting awarded vouchers. And they were holding these vouchers like a winning lottery ticket that they couldn't cash because they couldn't find a landlord who was willing to rent a unit at HUD fair market rates because we have such a housing shortage in Rhode Island that that decreased supply has increased demand and increased price and landlords didn't want to rent at lower rates and landlords who perhaps were willing to rent at lower rates more often than not had units that wouldn't have met the HUD inspection in terms of you know healthy and safe standards. So we decided as an organization to actually go out and buy some multifamily houses wow. and own them as the organization and rent the, rent the units directly to the young people so that we could disrupt that market. And believe it or not, uh, you know, it's not a highly profitable position, but it does create a small revenue stream back to the organization that we can put back into the supportive services. So it's a sustainable strategy for us. Um, and so now we uh, we actually just closed on our third multifamily last week. We closed in the morning. We worked with uh, shout out to the East Providence Housing Authority who worked with us to inspect that unit. And we had a young person moved in safely that afternoon, which is wow. really Amazing. That's some more forward thinking, you know. That is. There's no if you're not gonna rent, fine. We're gonna buy a place. That is yeah. <laughs> very commendable. Very commendable. Wow. So you've mentioned a lot about um some some of the different resources, some of the different programs, like the uh works wonders. Um what there's a few that I I mean, as soon as I read about it when I was doing the research on on Foster Forward, I was just all about. Uh, one was the storefront. Yeah. The other was your way home. Those two just screamed. They jump right off the pages. Can you talk a little bit about your, your program? Sure. So, you know, the community storefront is really our anchor back to the original mission and commitment of this organization, which was supporting foster families, both kinship and non-relative caregivers. And so we, um, over the years, would do a toy distribution 
um, on behalf of the Department of Children and Youth and Families for all foster families in the state of Rhode Island. So any family that was involved with DCYF, you know, actually um, families who were in their monitoring unit who um, had their children with them and had not come into foster care and families that were um, taking care of children who were in the foster care system, all would participate at the holidays with this um, toy, toy distribution. And since, since even before I started, so when I started in 2003, we um, had the generous support of Hasbro. They would donate, they would get the census directly from DCYF of how many young people were being served, a breakdown by age and gender, and no questions asked would send an 18 wheel truck with um, all the toys that were needed to support those young people. And the key question was, where is the 18 wheel truck going to go? And so for, for many years, we did kind of a pop-up where we would work with a location. So I think the first year I was here, it was Rhode Island Mall had, you know, the old Gap store was empty mm. and they gave us a rent-free lease for one month to, um, to do a toy distribution there. And we had to kind of get in, get the keys, set it all up, get the toys in and give, do the distribution and then clean up and close up shop. And then for a couple of years, we did it out of um, when we when we moved to a new office here in East Providence, we did it out of the office. But that wasn't ideal. The number of families that came through uh, on any day was really huge. And then we had a board member who um, was a foster and adoptive um, dad and also the chief financial officer of Ocean State Job Lot. And when Job Lot bought the plaza at 50 and Mary Street in Pawtucket. Um, there had been a Shaw's there and the supermarket closed down and Job Lot set up a, a store right there on site, but they actually own the entire um, the entire plaza. And they did a pop-up shop opportunity for us to go in and do the toy distribution. And we did that for a couple of years. And sometimes the store location would change, you know, year over year, depending upon who else had rented and what unit was open. And then one year, John and I had the conversation about what would it take to maybe not give the keys back at the end of December? And could we make this a year-round opportunity? And Job Lot's been incredibly generous with us. Um, so we have 4,000 square feet, which is literally two retail places side by side that are open in the middle. And um, in that 4,000 square feet, we collect gently used furniture, clothing, um, donations from the community. We also get brand new donations. So we do a pajama drive at the holidays. And this year we got over 4,300 pairs of pajamas that we give away at the holidays. But anything that doesn't go away at the holidays is there throughout the year for families that need it. And um, the Ticket to Dream Foundation sends us brand new inventory. They've got a collaboration with Beer Paw Boots and famous footwear. So we get a lot of brand new things for children and families. Um, they also have an ally program. So they've sent us a lot of hair care and skincare products for textured hair. Um, for textured hair. Uh, we've used young people, older youth to help train and support foster families in doing hair care. And we're able to run workshops. Um, just this last week, we had a potluck dinner with foster families right at the storefront. So foster families can come on a regular basis throughout the year to get these gently um, used clothing donations, furniture, other brand new stuff, and everything's free. It's, you know, they can come and shop whatever they need. 
Um, we are not open every single day. We've got some targeted hours during the week and, and on weekends. But what we do find is that kind of concentrates the visit. So a lot of families are all coming at the same time. They have a chance to meet one another. They're forming connections, building um, networks for respite, other things. I realize that that's kind of a far place to come if you're down in Newport County. Right. Um, but it is it is worth the trip. And Kate Bronner, who runs our storefront, she's at our main office at 408 438, I'm sorry, 401-438-3900-108. She's always available to work with somebody. And if there's a family who maybe can't get up here or needs something in particular, um, you know, we can find another foster parent who's willing to make a delivery out or to, to help out with that. Um, it's just a great, great resource. And it was so wonderful when it became a year round thing for us, um, you know, just to be able to have that stability. And Kate merchandises it like a store. It's absolutely beautiful. We have volunteers who come every week and help and, um, and just love to be a part of that community. And so, yeah, so can't say enough about the storefront um, as, a, as a way and a, a means to support families. Um, and it's kinship too. I mean, when I say kinship, I don't just mean kinship families who child's been removed by DCYF and then placed with a, a kinship caregiver. If somebody out there that's doing kinship, a grandparent caring for their grandchildren, you know, maybe a more informal arrangement or they went to probate court, we need to take advantage of any of these resources at the storefront. Um, give us a call because we would we would love to support them. Um, and that's prevention. You know, I mean, like when you think about it, right? If for some reason you couldn't stay with your parents because it wasn't safe to be with your parents for a period of time, the best thing we can possibly do is ensure that you maintain continuity to your family and your community. And that whenever possible, if there is a fit and willing relative who can care for you, that we maintain that normalcy for children, that we keep them together in their sibling groups and don't see them divided and placed in you know multiple different um, settings, it's it's so important to keep people together. So anything that we can do to strengthen and preserve and support families, you know, that's that's what we're looking to do. So if folks have donations that they'd like to make, they can give Kate a call. We do accept the donations on the days that we're open at the storefront directly. And Kate can coordinate that with any donors. Um, and if people want to volunteer or help out, we're always looking for more folks to get involved with the storefront too. Um, you know, you also mentioned your way home. Yes. So your way home was, um, you know, we um, had been the state's first aftercare provider for 18 to 21 year olds who were aging out of the foster care system. We were really grateful a couple of years ago when the state opted to legally extend foster care to 21. So now DCYF has an internal unit called VEC or the Voluntary Extension of Care. Um, unit and they provide services for young people 18 to 21. But right around the time that we were doing that 18 to 21 work as an aftercare model, we recognized that there were a whole group of 18 to 24 year olds who may or may not have aged out of the foster care system, but were experiencing housing instability. And we joined our state's continuum of care, which is the statewide board that um, works directly with HUD to come up with a comprehensive plan um, to support housing and address um, 
address housing services for anyone who's unhoused. And what we saw was that the usual continuum of providers were really, frankly, so overwhelmed with um, the young people, well, not even with young people, with adults that were experiencing homelessness and families that were experiencing homelessness and veterans that were experiencing homelessness um, and families who were impacted by domestic violence that resulted in experiencing homelessness, that there, the expansion into you know, really discrete programs to support youth experiencing homelessness hadn't, hadn't really had an opportunity to evolve. And right around that same time, we were able to apply for some HUD funding for rapid rehousing for youth who are experiencing homelessness. Um, we got our feet wet doing that work. It's, um, you know, being a, being a provider of a federal HUD contract um, is a new experience. It's a lot of work to, to scale up to do that, um, but it helped us get our feet wet. And so that's really, that kind of formed the basis for this Your Way Home program. And the goal is to pull on multiple different funding streams that might have different age ranges or whatever, but to try to create a seamless pathway to ensure that young people who've experienced foster care do not experience homelessness, you know, in their young adult to adult lives. And if they do, that it's rare, it's brief, and it's non-recurring. And that we create a continuum of services and supports that really help disrupt that cycle and, you know, get them on a sustainable path. So Your Way Home is all about rapid rehousing, uh, diversion for a young person who maybe is in an apartment and um, has fallen behind on rent or has other challenges and needs help in terms of maintaining the housing that they have today. We are just starting this week to roll out transitional housing um, for young people who are awaiting uh, to find a unit in rapid rehousing but need immediate housing while they're looking. I think a lot of people uh, think, oh, well, if you're experiencing homelessness, you can go to a shelter, but there are plenty of shelters. We actually have a wait list for shelters in Rhode Island today. And, you know, even when slots in shelters are available, um, you know, oftentimes young people are really not comfortable going to, to shelter systems. Um, it reminds them a lot of group care if they've been in, in foster care settings and group homes. Um, it can be triggering to them. And so our goal is to really get young people from if they're experiencing homelessness, to get them to be immediately housed and get the rest of the stuff going. So that end, we're partnering um, through this new Youth Homeless Demonstration Program um, that Rhode Island got from HUD. And um, there's a whole array of new contracts that are out there to support youth. And we're partnering with House of Kodak, which is an organization in Providence who's doing amazing work supporting um, young people who've experienced homelessness and um, particularly focused on the LGBTQI community. Um, they built a shelter space and now they're just about to launch some transitional housing. So we'll be working with them to provide the transitional piece and we'll be providing the rapid rehousing and helping young people with their vouchers access units. And we continue to just expand on um, how can we acquire units or work in partnership with others to develop units. And we have a couple of creative partnerships 
with community development corporations who are in the process of building new construction where there will be set aside units for young people leaving foster care. But we anticipate we need about 100 units that we either own or master lease or have as a set aside through partnership in order to meet the demand um, from, from young people in our Yoroway Home Program. And so I'm sorry if I, because there's a lot to take in. Um, some of your um, housing for young people, they don't, they don't have to have been in foster care or they do? So we, when we first started, um, you know, we didn't want to um, overextend ourselves right. with a population that we didn't really have experience with. So we said, let's start out sticking to what we know, yep. which is young people who've experienced foster care. So when we first applied for HUD funding for rapid rehousing, we created that um, criteria that we would be, our piece of this um, support would be for young people who had prior foster care experience. Um, we have, in doing the work, I think what we've realized is that there are a number of young people who are experiencing homelessness, um, who maybe didn't come into the child welfare system in a formal way, but had a lot of the same conditions and experiences that young people in foster care did, and that it wouldn't be a bridge too far for us to think that we could serve them as well. So um, we have now opened up our referrals with the coordinated entry system in Rhode Island that um, the rapid rehousing and the transitional housing um, slots that we have could be referred you know, for a young person who's homeless who didn't necessarily have foster care experience. The one thing that I can say is, you know, because there are probably going to be people listening to this podcast and saying, I'm either experiencing homelessness or I know someone who's experiencing homelessness, I'm going to call foster forward today to get one of those slots. And that's actually, unfortunately, not how it works. Um, we have to work through the coordinated entry system. So HUD requires that all of the financial resources that are supporting housing stability and rehousing and permanent supportive housing and transitional housing are all coordinated together. And there's a central point of entry called CES or the coordinated entry system. And there's a phone number that folks need to call. And I think, do I have it up on my wall? Um, I can get it for you. Um, but there's a, there's a phone number that people can call and they have to get in the queue. So once they call and then they'll have an assessment in terms of their level of need, and then they get prioritized and then they get referred. So somebody could come to Foster Forward and say, hi, I'm experiencing homelessness. And we will absolutely do the connection with coordinated entry and make sure that you get in the queue. And it's entirely possible that once you're, um, you're, you get your intake, that you will get referred back to us for an open slot, but we can't just immediately open somebody to service without that triage process. I've just been, I have um, young adult kids and I, I have recently just been made aware of quite a few um, young people enrolled in college, still taking classes that are um, experiencing homelessness. And I give them all the kudos in the world that they are still attending classes, making school a priority, working too, but 
I don't know yeah. how, isn't it crazy to it think is. of that? So um, some good work happening on that front. Um, Representative Julie Casimero in the Rhode Island General Assembly had identified this. I think um, there was a, a young person who was enrolled at Rhode Island College who had lifted it up to their attention. I know Rhode Island College was aware of this issue. Um, House of Hope has been focused on this this issue, Adoption Rhode Island and Darlene Allen over there at Adoption Rhode Island. And so we all came together along with Rhode Island Kids Count um, and another uh, and, and a number of uh, providers in the community. And I think what's coming out of that was a bill that was introduced in the General Assembly this session to focus on increasing um, the financial supports and the housing stability particularly for young people who are involved in um, post-secondary education. So for, for young people who've been in foster care, there, um, there is a higher ed incentive grant that is available. It's capitalized with about $200,000 a year um, by the General Assembly each year. And I think what they're looking to do is um, to, to take a look at creating a tuition waiver that could specifically cover the cost of tuition freeing up some of the funding and the higher ed incentive grant to help provide more um, stability in housing. And I also think some of the colleges and universities that have um, unused or underutilized dorm space are now starting to think about, you know, what's a year around strategy to mm -hmm. offer housing stability to young people. Um, so thank you for lifting that up. I mean, we truly have young people who are incredible scholars and pursuing higher education. And some of them are living in their cars, if not, you know, throughout the year, at least on school breaks mm -hmm. when, you know, dorms and other um, resources are shut down. Got goosebumps again. Yeah. <laughs> so what's from this, from, from this uh, interview, what's one thing the community can do? Mm -hmm. What's one call to action that Foster Forward would have for the community? So I just heard this morning that since pre-pandemic, the um, number of um, the capacity of our foster care system, meaning the total number of foster families that are available, it's about half of what it was. Mm. And that's putting an incredible strain on you know the, the families that are currently in the system it puts more strain on uh, kinship families who are being asked to step up in different ways and maybe sometimes in ways that they are not able to. Um, so call to action, um, you know, being a foster parent is something that um, so many people in the community could step up and do. Um, if you can't foster, please consider mentoring. Um, we have so many young people, particularly older youth in the system who need mentors. I will tell you one of the dangers of mentoring is that um, it might lead you into fostering. Um, <laughs> and that's a good danger. Um, so, you know, years ago, our staff, we have a program here called Real Connections. And our staff said to me, hey, we need you to be a mentor. And the young woman that they introduced me to her name was Bianca. She was a junior in high school. She was going to be the first person in her family to go to college. And she wanted somebody that could go to the FAFSA workshop with her and help her fill out that form. 
and maybe give her a car ride and plan some trips to um, visit some colleges and the campuses. And I thought, wow, this is such a wonderful opportunity to be um, to do some meaningful things with a young person and get out and see some places. And we developed a great relationship and she started coming over to our house before school and after school. And, you know, um, at a certain point she was experiencing homelessness. And um, luckily the Christian brothers of um, the De La Salian brothers um, housed her for a little while in um, their community in Pawtucket where they had folks that were doing uh, La Salian volunteers like Christian service after college. Um, so she was part of that community for a little bit. She had a bedroom there and then eventually moved in with us and has become a permanent part of our family. She's actually now, I'll brag a little bit, she's in law school and <laughs> she's graduating in May. Um, she goes to St. Thomas University School of Law. She actually had a chance to meet um, Benjamin Crump the other day when wow. um, they named the law school after him. So um, I think she's been inspired about issues of social justice. Um, you know, she herself was a child of an incarcerated parent. And I know one time we had a, there was a kids count event that the former head of the ACI was at, and she had an opportunity to speak about, you know, what was the experience of visitation for a child with a parent who is incarcerated and what can we do to preserve family connections and, you know, and make family visits um, with family members who are incarcerated, um, you know, less traumatic for, for children and for parents. And um, so she's, she's on a great track and she's, um, you know, it's been probably the greatest blessing of my life to be a part of hers. And all of that came through uh, mentoring. So, you know, for the community, I think there's, there's no act that's too small. Um, if you can't mentor or foster, if you have, you know, a dresser or a bedside table or, you know, other items at home that would be helpful for a young person. Um, coming up on April 1st is 401 Gives, which is a statewide day of giving in Rhode Island that the United Way is sponsoring. Foster Forward is going to participate. Uh, we're looking for donations on that day. We actually also have what we call a second home loyalty program. So if people are looking maybe go to our website at fosterforward.net. You can sign up and do a recurring gift. Um, and with our second home loyalty, we help young people who are moving into their apartments in your way home get set up, whether it's pillows or bed linens or, you know, making sure that they have a decent bed and some furniture in the apartment and just, you know, the basics that they need in the kitchen and in the bathroom. Um, the second home loyalty program helps us support that. So, um, you know, there are so many different ways to get involved and um, just really encourage communities, even just if you're on a school committee, ask how the foster kids are doing. You know, mm -hmm. if you're um, if you're part of a HES, a health equity zone in your community, you know, how, how are our families doing? If you have an apartment and you're a landlord and, you know, you're willing to say, hey, I'd be, I'd take a chance on a young person who's leaving foster care know that at Foster Forward, we provide supportive services. So we have supportive case management. We're going to be your partner if something goes wrong. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that we bought multifamily houses. We're doing it ourselves. When when I first suggested that with our board of directors, they thought, 
Lisa, is this is this too much? I mean, what happens <laughs> if somebody breaks a window or they don't pay their rent on time? And and I said, guys, listen, here's the deal. We've been using donor dollars to cover those challenges for years now. We've partnered with landlords and really stood by their side and, you know, and helped write the check sometimes when, you know, something did get broken. Um, but, you know, and I said, now we can just enrich our own equity position in that and create a more sustainable organization. But we do still need landlords. There's no way we can scale up fast enough um, to meet this demand. And it's not just for young people in care. I mean, I'm, you know, again, going back to this concept of totally preventable, I am so excited to be part of an emerging partnership with three other leading agencies in Rhode Island where we're working to develop um, about 160 units of supportive and affordable housing that'll be one, two, and three bedroom units. So it will create a community over three acres of land for not just young people leaving foster care, but units for families and everything at you know 60% or below area median income. So um, it will be truly affordable. You know, I really think at Foster Forward, part of our long-term commitment isn't just to help with housing for young people leaving foster care. I'd love to be able to help a grandma who just stepped up to care for her three grandchildren, um, ensuring that they have that they have sustainable housing so that you know they don't need to worry about that. And to create solutions that when families come to the front door of the child welfare system, and the biggest presenting factor is that they're not housing stable or that they're unhoused, that we can quickly provide community resources to connect them to sustainable housing so that they need not come into foster care. Or if that's the reason why they can't reunify, there's no reason why we couldn't expedite that process You know, if we ensure that we have um, housing that is explicitly set aside for, uh, for families who most need it. So where we continue to expand our thinking beyond just, you know, who's in foster care today or aging out of the foster care system, but instead say, what would it take for it to look completely different, for families to get what they need without having to come in the front door of foster care, for all young people who are transitioning to adulthood to have the right array of supports and services that are developmentally appropriate and um, and meet them where they're at. and. That's, you know, that's what we keep driving towards. That is us. What a vision. Yes. I love everything about this organization. I would be one of those people that would be like, okay, come live with me. <laughs> so you're, you live at where? <laughs> My kids are listening. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll have somebody out for home visit application. It's not, you know, there's training, there's a lot of support and most people think about it for at least a year before they make their first inquiry. So there's no reason why people can't just give us a call and um, you know, we'll help you get connected and get the process started. If you're interested in being a foster parent or a mentor. You heard it here first. Polly's a new foster parent. <laughs> <laughs> but Lisa, we thank you for your time. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Uh, the the forward thinking of Foster Forward is is just Amazing. astronomical. Yeah. It is it is huge. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing. I really appreciate being here with you. It's our awesome. pleasure. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Same here. Take care. Bye.
I'm Polly, and you've just listened to Totally Preventable. 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 Totally preventable.